The book dream inside you cannot wait. Never before have so many people questioned, what do I really want to be doing? For a lot of us, that means writing a book. Long deferred dreams, pandemic pause, and the solitude to make them happen means the time is now. The mechanics of book writing can seem mysterious, but they can be broken down, as can the logistical minefield of getting published. You need skills of the craft, but also practical advice from experts who've navigated the path. What's the arc to becoming an author? The value and peril of agenting, conducive editors, the formats to publish and ways to promote. We'll speak with writers, agents, editors, teachers, coaches, publicists, publishers, resources, and guides to navigate the way for those of us brave enough to bring our story to life. Drop in to your book dream and begin to make it real. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Today marks two years since the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak a pandemic. It's a time of war, fear, and pain of various kinds. Enter fantasy novels as an anecdote to our daily anxiety and tensions. We'll talk with Scottish author Michael R. Miller, who began writing his debut book, The Reborn King, when he was 10. In 2015, he renewed his efforts and released The Reborn King in November of that year. Since then, he has sold over 200,000 books, hit numerous Amazon bestselling charts, and worked at Bloomberry Publ- Bloomsbury Publishing Books. His award-winning series, Songs of Chaos, begins a new type of Dragon Rider epic that fans of Aragon, How to Train Your Dragon, and Pern are sure to love. Welcome, Michael. Lovely to have you with us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on Unbound. And um, I think even without the pandemic and a war, uh, fantasy reading is for adults. It's compl- your book is complete with sophisticated subtexts and uh, not to mention the vocabulary. My reading of Unbound is that it completely devours you and absorbs your attention. So I wonder if you'd Give us your take on how do these stories work? It's a kind of comforting parallel universe to retreat to or to enter into. How would you describe it? Um, it's in, that's interesting because I, I don't know if I would describe the type of fantasy that I'm writing, which is usually described as epic fantasy, as necessarily comforting. I mean, these worlds are a bit like Middle-earth from you know, Tolkien's work. There's, there's a lot of evil in these worlds. There's lots of horrible creatures. There's destructive forces. Often there are large-scale conflicts happening. So this particular branch of fantasy isn't, I'm not sure you would call it comforting. I don't know how many people would want to necessarily go and live in the, in the world of Westeros and Game of Thrones, for example. Um, but yet, I think people are returning to these sorts of stories time and time and again. Um, for a different, re- just almost for that reason, not not for the comfort, but for the fact that the heroes in the stories do prevail despite those terrible odds. I think that's one of the prevailing reasons why something like Lord of the Rings is so timeless. It, it you know that the that the tiny little hobbit, the person that shouldn't have any power at all to change events, is able to stand up to the greatest threats of that world and prevail. I think that's that that kind of hopeful inspiring message is what I think draws people back. Um, whereas a book that's purely comforting, um, maybe using dif- maybe used uh, differently, maybe people turn to that at different times, but um, I suppose there's comfort in the idea that you can overcome these struggles. Well, for me, um, you know, the empowering part is definitely... Uh, an issue, right? You're rooting. The person wants something. You know, Lord of the Rings. You know, the, you you the, the the main character desires something. He is thwarted. Um, yeah, overcoming obstacles. It's a hero's journey. Um, and clearly, yeah, that's a great inspiration. I think what I meant by comforting is just to be able to escape our daily world, to turn off the news, to be able to. Um, retreat into a world 
where the characters have superhuman abilities. Um, you know, Osric and Sovereign, they give us pause. You know, could we have similar energy um, to know what's going on in the inner lives of ourselves and others? They can read each other in a certain way because you make their interior lives physical, right? You can actually look into yeah. their interior lives. Um, I wonder what the motivation was behind that or how you came to that. Uh, behind uh, Sovereign and Osric specifically in that kind of introspection into character flaws, I suppose. Is that what you're uh, going for? Yeah, let me read something. Um, Osric then, let's see, here we are. Osric then desired to, it was, um, this is, he is now flying to Windshear Hold. Osric then desired to do this. I'm reading now from Unbound. Flying to Windshear Hold seemed like the exact thing he ought to be doing. A part of him knew it wasn't his idea. Years ago, that part of him had been stronger, more vocal in voicing alternative proposals to the charming voice. Yet now, after so much, after the voice had given him so many solid, sensible ideas, it was almost impossible to argue against it. So the charming voice, is, it has a physicality. It's like a character within a character. Um, and also, Osric is able to see inside Sovereign. He sees the physical dilapidation of the interior. There's like a rusty old chair. Um, and I wondered about making our interior lives so physical uh, if that kind of superpower isn't something we wish we all had. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, as a clarification for anyone listening, just, just in case that in, these two characters in the story are presented as the antagonists, um, uh, Sovereign being this despicable dragon that can take control and dominate other people's minds, and this is very much... He's not quite done this to Osric per se, but there's an element of that. This charming voice is a power of sovereigns to influence and control the minds of others. But, yeah, the, the idea of illuminating sort of an internal struggles through physical means, uh, you know, representing that as, through magic or however it's done in fantasy, I mean, it, it's an advantage of the genre that you can sort of get away with these things. You can, you can create situations that are impossible in order to tell the story of a character or, or their struggles much more vividly often than perhaps you would if it was a contemporary story. Um, it, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if we could just look inside ourselves and see exactly where the damages were and know how to fix it? Um, uh, which is, and which Osric can see, but it's still very hard to overcome that and you know, over the course of the story he goes through some of those struggles to uh, fix some of those wounds inside him. Um, but yeah, I think we, we would like to see that. We, we, we would love to be able to look inside ourselves and know exactly what's wrong. Exactly. Like a landscape where you can say, oh, this is collapsed here. This needs building up. This is now dilapidated and in need of energy. It's really something, um, I think that by giving us this metaphor, you've almost opened the door to being able to do that for ourselves in a funny way. Um, and I think even back to your original point of these epic fantasies being, you know, horrific in a lot of ways. There's a lot of destruction, there's killing, there's scorched earth, there's, you know, disaster. I wonder if that pathos of, of feeling the worst catastrophes is also part of the allure because it's almost like the blues. You know, you, you listen to the blues in order to kind of identify with something that's worse than worse off than you are, or just, you know, just being able to empty out your feelings of um, sadness, of saying, oh, you know, really, um, you know, emptying out, being empathic towards these characters. Uh, it's a great kind of relief. Uh, and I wondered if, you know, your original... Um, the book that you originally wrote, The Beautiful King, which I thought was so delightful. The title, you wrote it when you were 10, and then in 2015, it, it was reborn. Um, 
did you go ahead and self-publish then, or how did all that happen? Uh, well, so in yes, you're right to say I had I had various versions of the book sort of that I'd been chipping away at, mainly just some chapters here and there, and um, making very simple like progress where it wasn't wasn't very good, right? <laughs> these uh, these early sort of chapters, but I had some version of it that I always dreamed of working on. Um, and in 2014, I I graduated uni and I moved to London, and I was here doing a a condensed law conversion course. This is where you do a whole degree, which would normally take three years in the space of one year. So it's very condensed. It's very intensive. And uh, I guess I I had what I can only describe as a quarter life crisis and uh, didn't really want to be a lawyer. Uh, I wanted to just pursue that that dream of writing that book and seeing how that where that would take me. Um, I finished the course, which I'm you know proud that I've saw that through, but. I started writing on the on the side of that, and you know there was many other things going on. It wasn't a particularly happy time, but writing that story was sort of like you're saying there. It was like this cathartic release that, despite the fact that the story wasn't always happy, something about pouring a lot of energy into writing that story, which I'd always hoped to do, gave me gave me sort of a, a renewed purpose in my own life. I could pursue that. It, it gave it gave some meaning to a dark time. And the reason that I decided to self-publish is it's sort of because I like to take control of things. I don't mind the idea of learning a lot of new skills. I also don't mind driving things forward myself. Um, so the idea of you know marketing, interacting with the audience directly, handling the back end of Amazon, all these things, it didn't scare me away. And I, I thought that it, it, it was beneficial to me writing the book to know that it would actually be released. I think if self-publishing hadn't been an option and it had been like the old days of having to query the agents and, and do a lot of waiting and, and wondering, I maybe wouldn't have had that same enthusiasm and drive because there would have always been that question of, well, what if it never gets published? Whereas if I do it myself, it's always going to be published. And that, I think that's what really drove me towards that decision. Well, it's the hero's journey. You know what you want, and you know how to get there. And if you don't have all the tools you need, you'll pick them up along the way. Um, and, and you talk about how you uh, were also motivated by some of the fantasy that you first read, Mistborn, the series back in 2011. Um, you know, you talk about how you were not reading very much at uni because you know you were in this crucible of um, lawyerdom. Thank goodness you escaped from that before. It was, I mean, thank goodness you finished it, and thank goodness you you escaped from it before you had to go through the the the, the mind uh, the mind minefield that a lot of lawyers do before they realize, hey, wait a minute, at heart I'm a writer. But maybe that even prepared you for the arduous uh, task of self publishing, which, as you say requires that you learn all different aspects, the back end of Amazon and, um, you know, marketing. And, um, you know, I, I wonder now, have you continued to self-publish or have you been picked up by publishing houses? What's your attitude or disposition towards that now? No, I still self-publish to this day. Um, in, in fact, I also... Uh, when was this back? Uh, late 2017, I started a digital publishing company called Portal Books with a couple of other writer friends, uh, which is which has grown and, and is doing very well. Uh, but I am decided to sort of step away from that a little bit and focus on my own projects uh, exclusively. But uh, all of the same tools and a lot of the same learning uh, went into that. So, no, I'm still still publishing now. Um, will be for the foreseeable future, at least until. Uh, Songs of Chaos, this current series, is, is complete. After that, you know, I, I never want to say never, um, but at, at this stage, with the success I've, I've been thankful, to, uh, lucky to, to get, it's, um, it's a question of knowing the value of, of my books. I know what I can do. I know the value of that. I've worked very hard to build that audience. So um, I don't think traditional publishing is inherently bad or something. I'm not one of those kind of in the office. I think... They, they suit different people. I think they suit different situations. And there's pros and cons to both sides. If there was a, a deal that looked enticing and good enough, 
I would be tempted, but uh, I think I, I will likely default to self-publishing, but I'll never say never. We'll see what happens. Well, there's the cinematic aspect of the books that you've written, and um, I found it in Unbound certainly a sense that it would make a wonderful epic fantasy, you know, series or, um, you know, and that might involve, let's say, more establishment entities um, were that to happen. But I, I hand it to you. I admire you for retaining the self-control, the control over your intellectual property and the control over your process that you have. And you've had great success with a couple hundred thousand books. That's a lot more than most authors experience. Um, we have a couple more minutes until the break, and I just wondered about the the emotional pull of Mistborn, um, one of your favorite trilogy, trilogies by Brandon Sanderson, um, published by Tour Books. Uh, it was around 2006 and 2008. It consisted of The Final Empire, The Well of Ascension, and The Hero of Ages. I wonder if you feel that, you know, being drawn to writing because you were so affected deeply by this trilogy, for example, do you feel that your own trilogies and your own series have lived up or have made other writers feel the same kind of, you know, motivation and and desire to dig deep in themselves? Oh, wow. That's a a big one. Um, (laughs) Hard to say. I don't have the full scope of who's read it and what they've done, but I know, uh, just to keep the answer brief before the break, I, I have a Discord server, which is where a sort of community of people can come together and chat on a daily basis, um, sometimes over voice and video, and just sort of hang out there. And I do know that there are people mm-hmm. in that community who are aspiring writers who have said that um, Ascendant and Unbound have given them a little kick to try to return to their own stories again. And, and to and to write, so I think on, I think it's inspired a, a few people, hopefully. Um, but I wouldn't want to say to the extent of Mistborn that might be uh, that might be too egotistical. But I'm, I'm, if any one person was inspired to write because of it, I'd be delighted to know that. Wonderful. We are going to come back uh, with our guest Michael R. Miller, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what these stories bring to the young, to the old, to people of all ages who read fantasy and to understand how to enter a world like this as a writer and as a reader. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Michael R. Miller, author of, well, a series, Songs of Chaos, and the current book, Unbound. This is uh, the second in the series. Michael, this process of fantasy um, as a writer, it, it must be one of the most, challenging, if not the one of the most difficult, because as I was reading, it, it's clear you create fantasy settings, you create a magic system, um, and you talk about the magic systems in, in other books as having been inspiring to you, but a magic system, in other words, what works to make you know supernatural changes, um, what powers do these characters have, 
the very names of the characters, all of it is fantasy. Um, and, and just going to posit it as a kind of diametric opposite of, you know, for example, I write memoir. Memoir, you are talking about reality. You know the characters, you know what happened. So you're in a realm of fiction where not only are you creating the stories, you're creating the characters and the kinds of characters. They're not just, it's not just a given. None of them are really human even. So I'm wondering, do you walk into an office, you know, at home or where you work that's just full of boards of of post-it notes or timelines or character names? I mean, it seems so intricate. I wonder if you just describe um, how you manage it all. Um, well, no, there's no um, crazy man's hut with all the, the, you know, the pins leading around with the, with the bits of string, unfortunately. It is all sort of existing in my head and very extensive notes that I have on my computer and on my Dropbox and things like that. Um, almost like a little personal wiki file that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Not a very um, sophisticated wiki, mind you. It's just usually just Word documents and Excel sheets and stuff like that to keep track of things. Um, but... It, it, it is a hard, long process. You know, I think it, it's one of the reasons why this genre is a weird genre and that people want the books to be as big as possible. You know, a sort of standard fiction book might be something like 80,000 words or so. And epic fantasy is considered short if it's 150,000 words. You know, and you really want to be pushing mm-hmm. like 200,000 in some ways. And, of course, you've got the likes of Brandon Sanderson who write, you know, in his Stormlight Archive series. Those books are almost always... 400,000 words or more. These are huge, huge books. So not only is there a lot of effort into the world building, into building all this magic and all the names and the different species and everything that's fantastical about it, they're also very, very long. And, and partly you need that length to to put all that world building in. So if you've gone through the trouble of creating it, a lot of people want to put it in. And, you know, a lot of readers like that. They, what you were talking about earlier and um, being worlds that people want to escape to, the more immersive that the worlds are, the more coherent and well thought um, out these worlds are, the more that the reader can immerse themselves in it, the more that they will sink in and, and have, that slight, have that escapist element that you're talking about. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard. It, it, can, it can take a long time. And, you know, for Ascendant, I, it took me um, something like 17 months from beginning to end to write it and publish it. And that's not even including some months prior where I was doing some planning and note-taking and doing a bit of world-building. So it probably took about two years just to do that first book in the series in total when I, in sort of real time um, in terms of doing all that upfront world-building and thinking of all those systems. And it took a lot of different drafts and it took a lot of different approaches until I got it right. Um, Unbound was a little easier in that sense because I had a lot of that stuff established. But starting out in a new world, there's so much to build and so much to explore. Um, yeah, it, it takes a long time. And I, I don't think you want to put half measures in. You want to think things through as much as possible. Because if it doesn't, if it doesn't feel real, then people won't believe in it and they won't, they won't feel that immersion. Right. So um, the book Unbound is 678 pages long. And I say, you're absolutely right about really laying it out foundationally so that it builds on itself, this submersive world. And I I agree with you. And also maybe even the length and the full-on, you know, escape into this world, it challenges a lot of the norms in our society of everything being very quick, hits. Um, social media, uh, popularity, um, things yeah. that, you know, kind of slow you down and change the length of your brain waves where, you know, you're, you're really worried now about the ability of the dragons to become um, fertilized and come back as a, as a life force in, in Unbound. I mean, I, I found it to be also a way where you suspend judgment about yourself. You know, you can't, you can't really say, well, this is weird because... If you've created these characters and situations realistically enough, in other words, built in enough kind of authenticity and believability about them that we can suspend our belief and enter into a world-building environment, then 
you really do want to spend that time in it. It's almost um, a very <clears throat> luxurious process of, um, you know, I, I guess I still, I, I still try to picture you, um, you know, uh, as these plots unfold, how would you characterize the, the stories in the books themselves? Do you think they're action-driven, driven by the characters you've created, um, the goals of the characters? How, what kind of pulls it forward? Or when you're sitting somewhere or you're on a train and something comes to you, is it likely to be a scene or a character? Or how does it develop? So sort of two things there, like how, what, how, what drives a story? For me, uh, it's hopefully always character-driven. Um, I don't, uh, some books are plot-driven. Those are usually mysteries, right? And often that fantasy does have mystery elements. I mean, the Harry Potter books are essentially mystery books disguised as fantasy books sort of thing. Um, you know, there's always a mystery to be solved there, and that really drives a lot of the plot in those books. Um, I've tried to, at least I feel I tried to, make it character-driven. So, you know, what, in Ascendant, the first book of this series, what actually kicks off the story in a major way? Well, it's Hulk Cook, who is this little servant boy who has all these dreams of being a writer, and maybe they're naive, and maybe he hasn't quite understood how the world works yet and why things might be the way they are, even if he doesn't like them. Um, He discovers a dark secret about the dragons and what they do to eggs, and that, you know, that are considered defective in some way. Um, they destroy them. They don't. They don't allow them to hatch, and it doesn't sit well with him. And it's not a smart decision what he does. He's a very caring person, and he decides to steal that egg that he knows is going to be destroyed and try to hide it to try to save it. I mean, it's it's mad. It doesn't make any real sense. If he'll be punished. He knows he'll be punished. He'll be found out. There's going to be bad consequences for that. But he kind of makes that choice, and that one choice then sets off a course of events that, you know, kicks the whole, that kicks a lot of the plot off. And there's other things going on, but really I, I want to try and make everything that happens as much as possible be down to a character's choice based on who they are and why they, why they would do this based on everything that's happened to them, that we can understand completely why they would do it. It doesn't need to always be totally logical because people don't think cold logically all the time, but we need to feel that that makes sense that that person, that character would make that choice. And if, that, if, we can, if you can succeed in that, I think the stories do feel very authentic. They feel like the characters are driving it and that I'm not sort of waving, waving my magic wand to force characters to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. Um, um, and if you get that right, it, it, they can feel well-paced. You know, I think I can, I, this, is a slightly, this is a slight tangent. One, one, one complaint people say about books, sometimes long books, is, oh, it's boring. Often that can be just. Often that can be the characters are starting to act funny. That they're starting to act in ways that don't that aren't congruous to who they are or how they've been portrayed previously. The decisions aren't making mm-hmm. sense. We have a bit of dissonance. We can't really follow it. So the pace drops away and it feels slow and dull. So I I think it's really important that the characters' motivations are always front and center, really clear, really understandable, and really drive the story. Because if you have a if you have a, a cast of characters who have different values and different beliefs and, 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 you know, different hobbies, desires, everything, they'll all be making choices that clash off each other and create that conflict that drives a story. You don't need to manufacture something if you make the characters uh, as authentic as possible. It's so cool because um, I, I had to go back and um, really start to understand the characterization of fantasy readers um, because I, I, I love... I love what you're saying about their actions don't have to be logical because we are not logical. So, you know, in some ways they are representative of, of the way we think and act. Um, but there's a lot of um, sort of judgy language out there. I'll just give you some. Um, the psychology of fantasy. Um, here's one from a person called Pamela S. Gates. Um, one theory of fantasy readers, they argue that it attempts readers to avoid the responsibilities of life by putting off real-world responsibilities and evading serious personal issues. To these people, fantasy equates to useless daydreaming and nostalgia. And in fact, 
they conclude that fantasy is evasive, escapist, and counterproductive, to which I say, yay, um, because we're entirely too caught up in our productivity sometimes. But <clears throat> the happy part is that there's another school in this whole dialogue, the psychology of fantasy on doll space, it's found. Fantasy literature offers the reader much of what general fiction offers, escape and adventure, but it goes far beyond the familiar realm of belief. It allows us to enter a world of contrasts and opposites, to break away from the entrapment of realism. While some consider the genre to be of little importance of value or value, the psychological health of the reader, uh, we may argue that's integral to a healthy state of mind, which I think is so fascinating because, you know, you're vicariously living through these, vicar- these fantasy characters um, and it, it goes on to say that the ability to imagine is a mechanism for survival. Fantasizing is a human activity essential to creating balance in one life. And as Lloyd Alexander explains, paradox and polarity are inherent in the very structure of the brain. One hemisphere is rational, the other in, in non-rational and intuitive. And we need both to maintain equilibrium in this universe within our heads so that reading fantasy can therefore produce this mental balancing effect. I mean, I just found this fascinating that there's this idea that the more paradoxical, uh, the more polarities, the more attenuated those like life skills are in us to, um, you know, attend to and be attentive to in these books is kind of like a rebalancing uh, for the brain. Um, and it's also much closer to dreamlike states. I wondered if you as the writer and creator ever fantasized in dreams any of the scenarios of what goes on in your books, or you know, is it kind of like a daydream state, which is also incredibly important for our world-weary minds. Do these come to you in kind of in, in kind of visions or, you know, the character propelling forward in a certain way? Does it come to you in dreams even? Uh, no, that's the short answer. <laughs> I don't uh, dream mm-hmm. these things. I mean, my dreams are as bizarre and random as uh, anyone else's, I'm sure. Where where sometimes ideas will come is if I'm, <clears throat> you know, in sort of a forward motion, if I'm on a run or a long walk. Sometimes the, the scenes and will come to me. Sometimes the decisions of the characters will come to me as I sort of let my brain sort of think on other things. Um, it, I, I, I don't, I kind of, I know this wasn't what you were saying. I kind of take issue with anyone's sense of these things don't make sense. Ergo, this, this, and this. You know, just because the character isn't behaving as we might, you know, as long as they are behaving consistent to themselves, there is a, there is a rationale to it, even if it seems like a crazy thing that they're doing. You know, in, in, um, in Harry Potter, like, Harry does a lot of really crazy, stupid things, really, and you would tell him that, but he does it anyway, because that's who he is. Um, and that, and that it makes total sense, given everything we know about him and his history and what he's gone through. So I wouldn't say that it's because things don't make sense, and I wouldn't say that it's because it's, sort of pure escape. Um, I, I, think, I think that kind of outlook on fantasy is a little, mi- a little bit misunderstood. I think people that have that opinion haven't necessarily thought about it as deeply as they could. I, I also don't think they've maybe experienced a story that's really gripped them in a way that people get gripped by these things. If, if, if it didn't matter to people, they wouldn't be gripped by it. I think it goes a little deeper than just the layer of escapism. They become mm-hmm. mythological, almost fairy tale like, and we we learn these things growing up. There's all you know. Deep mythologies have a lot of resonance with us, and you have to figure out why that might be. And I think it goes back to that inspiring people, giving them symbolic representations of you know good, evil, uh, never mind anything else, and and how this this can play out for a story can help them to process things in real life, can help them face up to things in real life. It can certainly just be a comfort, but I think it goes a little deeper. I think it goes into psych- psychology that we like. We love stories. All humans have always shared stories and learned, especially learning through stories. You don't necessarily learn just by 
a cold, hard sort of fact. You learn by doing things and experiencing things. And so, I mean, I could go into more depth as to why this is and the sort of where I think uh, some of the criticisms of fantasy get a bit cynical and honestly a little bit naive <laughs> in places. Um, Mm-hmm. I don't really do. I don't. Take, I don't. Simplistic. I don't really take those criticisms. I think it's too simplistic. Yeah. Um, if you like to, I don't it's know very, how, what you think. Yeah. I, I mean, I honestly, I appreciate you saying all of this because it gives us a much more well-rounded. Um, I think this oversimplification comes from being entirely too grown up, when in fact, the threads of the imaginations that we had as children. You know, they get shut down, and a lot of us really are trying to recover that sense of imaginative occurrences, things that don't make sense. Even growing up, you know, with television shows where you had a talking horse or, you know, anthropomorphized animals, you know, there's a certain yearning um, not to just go back, but to say why not, and why not be able to allow those imaginative, very fertile threads continue to grow in our minds. We have to pause for another commercial break, but when we come back, we'll continue talking with Michael R. Miller, author of Unbound, Songs of Chaos, because I really think, Michael, that your books go a long way in refuting any of this um, cynicism about fantasy, and I look forward to speaking with you more when we come back. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Michael Miller, and he is the author of Unbound is the latest in the series. Um, Michael, it's really interesting also about how the fantasy world, how the reading of, uh, of your book, for example, it allows life lessons to kind of seep in or kind of creep in through the back door not being, you know, hit in the face with them, but just subtly taking them in because we're identifying and rooting for these characters. Um, I wonder also about the role of, of fantasy to, you know, adults of all ages to re-engage with some of these um, ideals, taking care of fellow man, um, you know, overcoming huge obstacles. There's a lot of self-help books out there that may not go so far as yours have to kind of promote these themes. Um, Are you conscious of the themes before you begin to write, or do they evolve as well? They evolve um, as the characters evolve. I mean, I will... I will often start with a character and the idea for them and their and their role in the story and their world and their role within a world and how they may conflict with that world. But I, I don't I don't go into a story thinking about what the themes are going to be and then trying to force things out to play out some kind of female message. I like to think if anything does come out of my books, 
it kind of comes out as a consequence of how the story has unfolded naturally through the character's actions. And if people find something in there that they want to point to, a theme or, or a message, that's, that's great. I don't try to force it in because I think you run the risk of it feeling inauthentic and, and just forced. We've all seen those sorts of stories where there's a, a bit, the message is a little bit too heavy-handed. The writers are the writer hasn't felt confident in what's going on, so they just have a character kind of tell you point blank what the message is, and it, it, it just doesn't land. It kind of makes you roll your eyes a little bit. If it comes out naturally after the fact, if you don't really see it at the time, but afterwards you think, oh, that person's journey, that character's journey is applicable here now in my life or another situation, I think that feels a lot more impactful. Absolutely. I'm also thinking a lot about um, the, the, you know, we talked about how it's, it's an appeal for all ages of people. It also strikes me as a genre, and in yours maybe especially, of, um, although J.K. Rowling did the same thing, of, you know, crossing over gender barriers, because to me it has both a male and female appeal there's intuitive qualities to these characters. They're not just strategic. They're just not in their strategic minds. Um, and I wonder, just as a writer, that really you sound so sophisticated in terms of your thought process. It's like the combined lesson of every writer's conference I've ever been to is exactly what you've said. Did you come to being able to write this way naturally or did you actually formally learn how to write? No, I, I didn't go to any formal uh, courses or training or anything like that. I just I started and I worked on it and I tried to refine and get better. I did make full use of a lot of online resources, um, the main one actually being Brandon Sanderson's uh, online lectures. This is He teaches a creative writing course at BYU. Um, and uh, years ago, there was a fairly shaky sort of almost recorded on the phone versions of these lectures and classes put up on YouTube. He has since sort of recorded them more officially on his uh, current channel. Uh, but they're there for everyone to see. I think actually one of the videos now has almost a million views. So a lot of people do make use of these, of these resources. Uh, and that they were extremely helpful in kind of helping me to, to learn some of the more technical ins and outs of things. I think, I think the sort of more the the wider scale thing about thinking through why why characters should act the way they act and things like this. I think that just came naturally through trial and error. You learn that if you try to force it, it doesn't feel right. You have to learn to trust your gut a little bit. And you mm -hmm. know, the more that, the more that I've done this, I've become <laughs> I sort of ruined stories for myself in some ways. If I watch something, I sort of I'm looking to see in the movie where the plot is going, what the, what the characters are up to. I'm trying to look for all the foreshadowing. But you, you start to... I start to try to intuitive what works and what doesn't and why that doesn't work for me when it doesn't work. And a lot of the time, it, I, I've, I've tried to think about that very carefully now over, over what, oh, I don't know, eight years or so. And so I think it sort of grows step by step. Um, but no, no formal training, just a lot of intuition, a lot of practice. Uh, I mean, if you practice enough at anything, you'll get somewhat competent. And uh, I'm still learning, absolutely, and that hopefully every book gets better than the last. I'd, I'd hate to think that I've written my best book already. That would be a shame. So hopefully there's still more to come. Well, I would look forward to it. I think the, the genre and the way that you have approached it um, with this kind of intuitive um, and, and kind of practice discipline I, I also think that, you know, we, we talked about it during the break. It's refuted a lot of inherent biases that I may have had unknowingly as not a consumer of fantasy. But once I delved into your book, I, I started to realize that I was brought alive in a certain way. And I wonder as a writer, if you feel as though you're kind of brought alive by the process of writing fantasy, if a million viewers are looking at Sanderson's video, it seems as though it's touching a chord. It, it seems as though people want to, you know, bring themselves, their imaginations alive again. And, you know, does that happen to you when you sit down to write? 
Yeah, yeah, not not every time. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it just feels like work. Sometimes it's tough. And if you don't, if you feel like you haven't got a grip on the story, sometimes you feel lost and wayward, and it's horrible and torturous. But there are those moments that are basically euphoric, where you you sort of solve it. You get that eureka moment. Things fall into place, uh, and you you hit the zone, and you're just in a in a flow state and you're writing this out and it, and it could be usually it's some usually it's a fairly pivotal scene that this happens and well things are all coming together it definitely feels uplifting it, it feels it feels sort of greater than the sum of its parts as you're as you're doing it as it's happening um but that's not every scene as it as it, sh- as it couldn't be every scene it's not possible and so those, those moments are the best bits of, of doing this you know there is, there is an awful lot of work involved not just in the writing, but in the publishing and everything else around it. But I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I love problem solving through the plots and stories. And I love those moments where it all comes together. It makes it really feel worth it. That's so cool. And the administrative side of it, how much time does that take up as a self-publisher? Do you, how does your, you know, it's, it seems like it would be a, an amazing kind of counterbalance to the writing process. Is it very absorptive of your time to do the self-publishing part of it? Oh, yeah, yes. Um, I'd say about half my time is spent on things that aren't writing. Um, everyone's different. Uh, some people some people write multiple books a year and release them. I, I Obviously, I write quite large books. I'm a little slower than some people. Anyway, so I, I've gone uh, to write one book a year. It's my sort of standard right now which I try to make as good as I possibly can. But otherwise, around that, there is a lot of extra work. There is a lot of ongoing advertising that you run, and I have to keep checking those things. This is on Amazon, Facebook, you know, other platforms. That requires constant attention because things always change. You don't want to overspend. You want to make sure you're targeting the right things. You, you know, there's a, I have a mailing list. I have other platforms that I keep up with my readers on and try to interact with them. Uh, I host other offers to come into my Discord server. We'll have interviews in there and chats and allow people to ask questions. You want to go to conventions sometime, meet other people and, and interact with um, other writers and fans in the, in the, and just people in the industry. So there is a lot of stuff around just writing. And even if you want self-published, even traditional authors have to do a lot of extra work around it, perhaps not as much, obviously, um, in some of the nitty-gritty. But, you know, it... it, it being a writer isn't just about sitting down and writing. There is an awful lot of extra stuff that goes into it. Um, and it's, it's worth knowing because, you know, if, you, if, you, if this was something that someone out there wanted to do, you don't necessarily just get to sit in a hut and be a hermit and write. Um, and I don't think you'd want to be that either. I think there's so much to be gained from talking with colleagues about the writing, getting their ideas, getting their feedback, learning from each other and meeting the readers um, whether that's online or in person, because that really drives home like, wow, people actually pick up and read something that you wrote. It's a really weird feeling, even to this day, sometimes it catches me by surprise that people actually read something that I, I produced. It's, uh, it, it's quite humbling, actually. <laughs> sometimes you get these messages and it's, it's, quite, it's quite humbling and startling to see any difference you've made in someone else's life. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of additional work, but um, it, it allows me to keep doing it. So I'll keep doing it. Well, I think it's encouraging to our listeners um, who might be contemplating this um, that, Michael Miller, you've been so generous sharing all the different components of the writer's life, uh, and you've brought out books in far under the amount of time that it would take for a traditional publishing house um, and we just wish you the very best. We have just a couple of minutes till the close. Um, how, you know, how, what, what is the best way to reach you? I think listeners are going to want to touch base. I have your social media handles. Um, you're on Twitter, mmdragons underscore blade. You have a website, michaelrmiller.co.uk, a fertile hotbed of writing, if ever there was, in both the Celtic lands and the UK is really, um, but fear not. Even if you live in LA, you can write a fantasy uh, novel, I feel. But Michael, how do you recommend people reaching out to you? Yeah, I think the best way is if you if they go to my website at 
www.michaelrmiller.co.uk. There's links there to all my social platforms or there's a contact form where you can just send me an email. So any which way that works best for you, that's fine. I'll, I'll get the message and I respond to everything that's sent to me. So don't worry about reaching out if you'd like to ask a question. That's so lovely. Um, I'm just going to ask you, this is a terrible yes or no question, but we only have a minute to go. Do, do you feel impacted by the country in which you uh, lived, Scotland? Um, I mean, there's such a mythic tradition in that part of the world, the Druids and, and Yeats and E.M. Um, e. Forster and J.R. Tolkien and Rowling, all of it. Do you feel that it's impacted you at all? I just want to touch on it briefly. Uh, yeah, I know we're running out of time, but I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I studied history at university first before, before law, and uh, that was specifically turned into Scottish history. And there's, there's so much that you can mine there that has elements of that did go into my first series. Elements of that will always probably come into the work somehow. Um, the, the landscape, Good. especially in the Highlands, is just stunning. Uh, you know, you can, you can imagine yeah. a fantasy setting taking place there uh, any time. That's so cool. Uh, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I hope, I hope, to be, I hope to bring in even more of that in a future epic one day. Wonderful. We'll look forward to it, the missed parting. Thank you so much for being with us. And thanks to our engineers, right. Mac Widener and Aaron Keller, to Ryan Treasure, to our executive producer and station manager, Robert Giolino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and find your magic system. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.